After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bowl, and his belt. Chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth to Raman and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? Isn't it isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least link inkling from my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time of the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has made, he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, 
not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much, Susie. Uh, very good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to church. So good to see you. Uh, can I add my welcome to that of, of Darren's? My name's Alex. Welcome to those of you who are joining us on our live stream. Uh, do keep the bulletin open uh, to that Bible passage. We'll be covering some of this passage, but also other chapters uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, great story uh, about our Putong Wai ministry, as you heard about the Putong Wai ministry to, uh, for Cantonese classes and lots of events on the back as well. So make sure you take this home with you. Uh, can I pray? And uh, we'll have a look at this passage. Uh, Lord God, thank you for all the blessings that you give to us. We're mindful, just following uh, the new lunar year, uh, that we have every blessing in Christ. Uh, you give us life and health, uh, work and rest, friendship and family. But above all, you give us a relationship with you through your son, Jesus, um, that we can know Jesus and be known by him. And thank you as well for your word, that in your word uh, we get to know you and even we get to know ourselves deeper. And so as we uh, look at your word uh, right now, would you guide us by your spirit so we'd rightly understand it and apply its truths to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about three years ago, uh, the library at the University in Canberra uh, in Australia was evacuated. Apparently, uh, there was something that seemed like a gas leak, the smell of gas emanating in the building. The fire department were called and they arrived at the scene. And all these people in hazmat suits had to conduct atmospheric testing. Now, later on in the day, the library authorities released a statement on their Facebook page which said this, Thanks to everyone for evacuating so quickly and safely. About 550 people left the building in under six minutes. Fortunately, the suspected gas leak turned out to be part of a durian fruit. The offending fruit has now been removed. Now, apparently... Someone, they don't know who, left a big piece of durian next to an air vent and the smell went everywhere. Now, in case you don't know what durian is, in case, it's that big thorny fruit that's native to, to Malaysia and Indonesia, but it's enjoyed all the way through Asia. Now, durian is a divisive fruit. Uh, if you've tried durian, you normally have a strong opinion about durian either way. For durian lovers, durian is the king of fruits. Uh, it tastes mildly sweet, almondy, uh, very creamy, kind of like a, a rich cheesecake. And for durian lovers, there's nothing better than a durian-flavoured milkshake. Uh, but for other people, the smell of durian is... Well, it's enough to make them gag and turn around and, and, and walk the other way as quickly as possible. A lot of people have described the smell of durian like um, rotten, mouldy onions or the smell of an old dog. Uh, for me, it was kind of reminiscent of uh, changing rooms at rugby clubs, uh, a little bit like that. Uh, and obviously, we know Singapore, for instance, the place where there's lots of rules, uh, you can't bring durian into the subway in Singapore. Durian is a divisive figure in the fruit world. You either love it or you hate it intensely. 
Now, uh, we're continuing in our series looking at the life of David, this great shepherd king, because there is more written about David than any other person in the Bible except for Jesus. And in this part of the story, in 1 Samuel, we see David is a divisive figure. You either love him or you hate him. There's no mild indifference with David. Now, so far in the story, we've seen two kings. The first king was the king that the people asked for, King Saul. But he is a failed king. He, he rebelled against God, didn't follow God's commands, and God has rejected him. He's a failed king. But we also see a future king. A few weeks ago, uh, in, in, in 1 Samuel 16, we see David anointed as the next king. And this is an unexpected choice because he's a nobody, the, the eighth son in a nobody family. He's small and inconsequential. But then, remember last week, we saw David win an unexpected victory. He came up against the giant Goliath with all his armor. This guy is a weapon of mass destruction. And David, through God's enabling, won a victory for God's people. And now, until the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, David is the main character. And if you read on the story, you'll see that no one responds to David with mild indifference. You either love him or hate him. And that's what we see as we'll skim through uh, chapters 18 and 20 today. And so as we do so, we see three things. Saul's response to David, Jonathan's response to David, and how we respond to the king. We see Saul's response to David first. Uh, After David had defeated Goliath, we're told what happens in chapter 18 from verse 7. Uh, Here are women and they're dancing and they sang... Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Um, What's going on here? It's envy. It's jealousy, isn't it? Uh, Saul sees and hears the reaction of the crowds to, to, to David and he thinks of himself uh, to himself, Dave, David's making me look bad. And, and of course we know that the reaction of the crowds is a little bit over the top. David hasn't killed ten thousands nor has Saul killed thousands. Saul was hardly even involved in the whole thing with Goliath. But Saul sees the danger. Uh, uh, David's got this overwhelming public support. People are loving him and and, and Saul recognises a threat to his kingship. Maybe they're lodged in the back of Saul's mind is what Samuel said to him in chapter 13 a little while ago. Do you remember that Saul disobeyed God and Samuel said to him, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul remembers this and he, he, he sees David and he sees David's success and he sees David's popularity and he's thinking, maybe this is the man. And what's his reaction? Envy. Now think about how envy works. Uh, envy is that pain that you feel within you when you see somebody else's success. 
It might be someone you actually know. Something has gone well for somebody that you know, and instead of celebrating that person's success, you feel a, a deep resentment. You, you want that person's success for yourself. A key component of envy is comparison. And that's how it's working with Saul. He hears people shout out, David has killed his ten thousands, but Saul has killed his thousands. And he's thinking, well, hang on, David's got ten thousand, I've just got a thousand. David's getting more praise, more acclaim, more success than me. What's going on? And, 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 and the problem with envy is you're actually not happy about other people's success. You, you can't appreciate her beauty, you can't appreciate her happiness, you can't appreciate his achievement, you can't appreciate his promotion, you can't appreciate that person's success without immediately connecting it to you, without comparing it to you. Envy makes everything all about you. Uh, Gore Vidal once famously said, when I see my friends succeed, something within me dies. I mean, look what happens to Saul. Uh, Saul is still the king. David is still a shepherd and someone in his army. But Saul's envy absolutely enslaves him. Uh, and we see it in the coming chapters. So, for instance, in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And twice in the next few verses, Saul tries to kill David with a spear. And, and people aren't immediately suspecting anything going too wrong. Uh, they're, they're, they're thinking, oh, well, Saul's in a bit of a rage. He gets like this every now and again. He flies off his handle and, and throws spears at people. They, they, they didn't really suspect too much at this stage. It's not until later on, for instance, in chapter 20, when Saul's intentions become a lot more clear. It's like he unmasks himself and says to people, well, I don't care what people think, David's got to die. He's got to be ended. And that's what happens for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul's envy for David overwhelms him. He, he, it makes him want to kill David. First, it's these bursts of jealousy and anger, but then it turns into this murderous vendetta. Why? Well, I think because the main thing for Saul is his kingship. That's what he wants most in life. That's what he feels represents him. It's who he is. And once he starts losing a hold of his kingship, the prophet Samuel says that his kingship is going to be taken away from him. And, and he sees somebody else, someone who could be a threat to him because he's more popular. He sees a David and David's success he can't control himself. He becomes enslaved to this kind of envy. And it can easily happen. I mean, think about your envies. Uh, what is it that you see in somebody else that you want for yourself? Is it their looks or their career success, their, their, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their marriage, their, their functional children, their, their, their portfolio? What is it that you see in somebody else that you, that you want for yourself? Very often, what we envy reveals what's most important to us, even what's more important to us than God. And when we can't get what we want, it has this very corrupting influence in our lives. It's corrosive influence. It's corrosive in our relationships with those people whom we envy, but it's also corrupt, corrosive in our relationship with God. 
Because we, we want that other thing. We envy something more than we want God. That's Saul's reaction to, to David. What about Jonathan? Well, look from verse 1 in chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as he loved himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Uh, Jonathan's reaction to David wasn't like his father. Jonathan loved David. And here we, we, we see one of the most intimate relationships described in the Bible. This incredibly close friendship. And, and, and I think we can learn three things about David and Jonathan's friendship that can inform our own friendships. First of all, it was close. Um, that expression it used in verse 1, Jonathan became one in spirit. One in spirit obviously represents an incredibly close and personal bond between two people. Now, it's not, this is not just a superficial friendship. They're not mere casual acquaintances uh, who have been brought together by a, a common regard for king and country, and that's about it. No, it goes far deeper for these two guys. Twice we're told that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. That means that Jonathan sought after David's interests like he sought after his own. He sought after David's ambitions and David's priorities and David's welfare as if it was his own. Now look, I want to pause here and say often, often, uh, when things get a little bit mushy and emotional like this between two guys, a lot of other guys feel a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, we start to look at the ground or change the subject a little bit. But here, here are two warriors these are tough guys. Their lives are on the line all the time. They're in war. But here also, they're vulnerable with one another. You read through the chapters and, and, and they, they lay bare their emotions. They talk, about, they, they talk about their feelings. They cry. They weep. They hug one another. Now, here are guys who go beyond the superficialities. And it gets us thinking, okay, how can we do the same in our own friendships? Well, let me just give you two examples. True friendship means... You are, you're open with others about your decisions. Now, what does that mean? Sometimes, you, hopefully, you, you have in your life people who you would consider to be very close friends. And yet, you keep from them big decisions that you make in life. You know, about who you marry or where you live or what jobs you take or health problems or things like that. Now, of course, you might say, well, aren't my own decisions my own decisions? Well, yes, they are. But when you don't bring other people in on, on, on your decisions and ask for their input, ask for their advice, you're not opening up your arms to that person. You're not being vulnerable to that person. You're not welcoming their input and their wisdom and their advice in your life. You're, you're keeping yourself constrained. You're keeping them at a distance. True friendship means being open with others about your decisions. But it also means being open about your own flaws. In Hebrews uh, chapter 3, it says, But encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you see what that's saying? It, it means we can be blind to our own faults. We can be oblivious to our own character, character flaws. We, we can't see them. Sin can deceive us. Which means we, we need people in our lives to encourage one another. We need people in our lives who are going to speak into our lives who are going to say, hey, have you thought about this? Or why did you do that? You need to give permission 
to a few people in your life to speak into your joys, yes, but also your failings. We need to be open and transparent with one another. We can't just be involved with marketing, putting up a shop front, showing people the best side of ourselves, even those people who are close to us. Look, true friendship is more than just sharing a common time and and common interests with one another. You might have a thousand friends on your Facebook page, but how many of them do you really know deeply? How many of them would you be prepared to open up your soul to? How many of those people would be there for you in a really difficult moment? True friendship has got to be close, but then true friendship is also committed. We're told in verse 3 that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Now, that word covenant, we know, means a, a, a promise, a binding agreement between two parties. Now, what's, what's the big deal about this? Well, the author and and theologian and pastor Tim Keller is very helpful in this description. He says that most of our relationships aren't covenant relationships, they're consumer relationships. That's when a person is only in a relationship with somebody else as long as they're getting something that they need. Now, most of our relationships are consumer relationships, you know, with your employer or your landlord, your phone companies, your your gyms and clubs and so on. They're, they're, They're on the basis where a, a, a good, like a product or a service, is provided at, at an appropriate price. But as soon as you can get a better deal somewhere else, you're gone, right? You're always looking for an upgrade. And so our relationships are, are, are always often, well, are often based on that. A consumer relationship is saying, if I don't get my needs met, then I'm going to go somewhere else because my needs are more important than the relationship. But a covenant relationship like this is saying the opposite. A covenant relationship says, I'll adjust to you because I have made a promise. The promise, the relationship, is more important than my own personal needs. Now, most of our relationships nowadays um, exist to the extent that we're only really connected with people as long as they're not costing us too much. You know, it's not too inconvenient. They're not too demanding on us. They're not too emotionally draining. But as soon as the cost becomes too high, we cut off that relationship. You know, we, come, we become kind of exploitative of other people it's because we're consumers. But look at David and Jonathan. Jonathan is saying to David, I am committed to you in good times and bad. I'm not just here for the laughs and the good times. I'm not just here for what I can get from you, David. I'm going I'm to be with you through thick and thin, through good times and bad. So here's a friendship that's close and it's committed, but also we, we see that it's crucial. Um, you see, we can be tempted to look at, at, at Jonathan and David and, and look at their sort of covenant, their commitment to one another and say, well, that all looks good on paper. But will these guys actually be there for one another when the times are tough? And we see the answer to that when we go into chapter 20. Because in chapter 20, we see right at the beginning of verse 1, David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Saul is after David. David knows it, and he flees away from Saul, and the first person that he goes to see is 
Jonathan. Because he knows with Jonathan, he'll find security and support. He's able to confide in Jonathan in these terrible circumstances because he knows Jonathan will be there for him. And it's really interesting that this idea of covenant comes up again in this chapter. Here is the two of them and and they put together this plan to try to figure out Saul's real intentions. And in verse 16 it says, So Jonathan made a, a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Remember at the beginning of chapter 8, when this friendship is formed, there is covenant making. And now here, halfway through chapter 20, during this really difficult time in David's life, there is covenant renewal. And I think we're meant to see this covenant, this this deep and committed binding relationship, is one of the things that holds life together for David in these tough circumstances. He is in one of the most difficult circumstances in his life. He's stressed out, he's anxious, his life is being threatened. And he goes to Jonathan. And it's as if, you know, if it wasn't for Jonathan... David wouldn't make it. Now, the chances are that you won't find yourself quite in the same situation as David. You know, it's not likely that someone's going to try to kill you six times. (laughs) But you are likely to go through troubles in life. You're you're likely to experience those tragedies in life, right? Those storms. And, And if you don't have close and committed friends with you at that time, you can fall through the waves. Now, some of you, the, the image has come up, might be familiar with that 90s sitcom, um, Friends. I can see all, most of us are old enough to remember this sitcom. It's about, you know, six friends growing up in their 20s and 30s in New York, and there's that catchy theme tune, I'll be there for you. And one of the, 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 uh, the actors, David Schwimmer, said, um, it's a fantasy, actually, for a lot of people. It's a fantasy having a group of friends who become, like a fan, uh, who become like a family. And for many people, that is the case. Um, one survey that I looked at said that 20% of adults confess to feeling lonely all the time. And another 20% of adults say that they have no close friends with whom they can share their problems. Now, let me speak um, just very briefly for a moment to the guys here, uh, because... I guess this is more my experience. Uh, Ladies, it looks as though ladies can make and maintain friendships better than guys can. Uh, Guys struggle, uh, particularly so as we go older, because, you know, when we're young, we have a little bit more time. Uh, the, the, The barriers are down a little bit more. When you're at school or university, you can make friends a little bit more easily. But as you get older, um, we become more time poor. We have a lot more commitments. But also, we carry around with us a lot more emotional baggage and we're more critical of people and we're more risk-averse. We don't want to open ourselves up. And a lot of guys, you know, we have an attitude where we think, I, I, I don't want to need anyone. You know, there's pride. I don't need anyone. I'm self-sufficient. I can get by in life quite fine. A man is an island, secure. I don't need anyone. And as a result, we become relationally poor and spiritually impoverished. Because we don't have other men who actually go through a lot of the same problems that we do, 
you know, you're not really in a minority going through the problems that you do with your family, with your marriage, with your kids, with your job, with your temptations. Other guys go through those problems as well, but we don't have other men speaking into our lives. And so as a result, we're, we, 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 we carry around the burden of failure quite often, and we're not flourishing in our spiritual lives as we could be because we're, we haven't invested deeply in relationships with other men. We haven't been willing to bring down the walls and be emotionally vulnerable with other guys. But look at David and Jonathan. They share their emotions. They weep with one another. They confess with one another. They're there for one another in those hard times. They're close and committed because friendship is crucial. That was Jonathan's response. And let me speak... Uh, a little bit more then on what it means to, to react to this king. Because Jonathan's lessons for us is not simply how to be a good friend, it's also how to be a good follower. Because Jonathan recognizes in David the king. Now let's go back to the beginning of chapter 18. And just after Jonathan makes a covenant with David, he does something strange. In verse 4, we see... Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belts. Um, now this looks a little bit strange. Jonathan's not just sharing his coat with David because David's cold or it's a you know, spontaneous gift. No, this is an act laden with political significance because Jonathan is giving to David his, his royal paraphernalia that which represents that he is the king's son and therefore the king's successor. This, you could say, is an act of symbolic abdication. In giving all these things to David, Jonathan is saying, you deserve to be the king. Now, you have to understand the significance of what is going on here. Here are two guys who are supposed to be rivals, Jonathan is the king's son. He's the crown prince. He's the guy with all the right upbringing and background. David is from a, an obscure family, the last of eight sons. He's just a shepherd who's, who's, you know, you could say he's won a lucky victory. Good shot, David. And, and, and now they're supposed to be rivals. But for all intents and purposes, Jonathan should be the king. You know, he's the one with the right upbringing, the right, the legal right. He was the warrior and the leader. He himself had won victories for God's people, almost single-handedly against the Philistines. He had all the qualifications. You could imagine it like two guys in a presidential campaign, and they're getting to the last stages of the presidential campaign. And one guy, he's leading by a long way in the polls. But then one morning, just before the election is supposed to happen, one of these guys who's leading a long way in the polls has a press conference. And he says, I want to let you know that my opponent is a far better candidate than I am. He is wiser, he's got better character, better integrity. I'm going to pull out of the election. I think you should vote for him. That's kind of what Jonathan is doing here. Now, we know a lot of the old stories because we see the movies. When, when you give, when one person gives another person his sword, hilt first, he's putting himself in a, in a position of incredible vulnerability because that other guy could take the sword and kill him with it. When you are giving someone your sword, you are saying, I'm yours, command me. Now, in ancient times, 
you don't put your sword in the hand of your rival, you put your sword in the belly of your rival. But that's what Jonathan could have done. After all, he could have had the same envy and the same bitterness that his father Saul had for David, but he doesn't. Instead, he seeks to serve David. Now, why would Jonathan want to do this? I I don't think it's mere political concerns, nor do I think it's the emotional need for a friendship. I think he pledges his service to to, to David because he recognises in David God's anointed king. I mean, if we go back to to chapter 20, we we, we begin to see where the test for Jonathan comes. Uh, Even though Jonathan doesn't believe that his father Saul actually wants to kill David, David and Jonathan agree to put Saul to the test, to, 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 to explore and investigate what would happen. And Jonathan says in verse 13, If my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In committing himself to David, to, to, to Saul's enemy, Jonathan is committing himself to a clash with his own father. And when the plan goes ahead and and David doesn't show up at this feast and Jonathan has to give excuses on his behalf, Saul flies off the handle in rage. He tries to kill Jonathan and he says this, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You see how Jonathan's costly decision will affect him. It affects his relationship with his father. It affects his own future. Verse 31, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. This is not just a deep and committed friendship. This is costly service to God's anointed king. Now, Jonathan's choice is our choice. He had to choose whether to follow God's anointed king, David. And we have to choose whether we're going to follow David's descendant, Jesus, God's anointed king. Because just as David was a polarizing figure in his time, you either loved him or hated him, so also Jesus is a polarizing figure. You can have no mild indifference with Jesus. Jesus said to people, you either kill me or you crown me. You love me or you hate me. You're with me or you're against me. So look, whether you um, love or hate Durian doesn't, doesn't really matter. But do you love or hate Jesus? And your answer is not gauged by, you know, warm feelings at church. Your answer is normally gauged by the choices and the decisions you make in life, which often come at a great cost to you if you you seek to follow Jesus. Because look, from just about every vantage point, what what Jonathan looked like he was doing was, was just sheer stupidity. Because he was, he was sacrificing his relationship with his father. He was sacrificing his future security and status. And sure, God, 
doesn't want us to disobey our parents. We're told to obey our parents. And, and, and Jonathan sticks with his father, even a great, cost, great personal cost to himself, to the end of his life. But there are personal and relational costs in us following Jesus as our anointed king. Because we have to make choices all the time that will indicate who's sitting on the throne of our hearts. Choices like whom you marry, which jobs you take, what promotions that you go for because in the back of your mind you know that promotion is going to cost you a lot of time and you won't be able to give as much to your family or your church or your God. That's choices about how you behave at work, the, 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 the reputation if you stand up for Christian principles, the, the, the relational capital that might be at stake, there's costs to, 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 to how big your bank account is, all sorts of choices all the time that we make. And so where do we get the resources to make the choices all the time to enthrone Jesus as our King and to keep making that choice, to be a Jonathan and to not hold power for yourself but to give over power to this King? Well, you have to do exactly what Jonathan did. You have to look at this anointed king and say, I can see that God's salvation is coming through you. But in order to get that salvation, I have to get off the throne of my own heart. I have to give you my robe, my, 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 my sword. I have to give you the crown. I have to not just believe in you, I have to give my life to you. You say to Jesus, Jesus, you are my ultimate friends. You are so committed to me that it costs you everything. It costs you your own life. And you are with me all the time. Jesus, I want, I want to give you my heart. I want to be with you all the time. Therefore, every decision I want to commit to you. You say that from your heart because you know there is no better friend than him. He's with you through thick and thin. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we, we do thank you for this story. Uh, we thank you for this true story about these true people, people who are very much like us. We see a lot of ourselves in Saul and in Jonathan and even in David. Um, Lord God, first of all, we do want to thank you for the friends that we have in our lives. And we pray here that as, as Christians, we, we might invest in, in spiritual friendship, Christian friendship. Uh, we know that it's difficult uh, because it involves being vulnerable um, showing people our flaws, not being involved in marketing all the time. Uh, it involves time and sacrifice. Um, so Lord, would you help us uh, to have the friends that we, we need and to be the friends that we need to be to others? Um, help us to take the initiative to, to do that. But also, Lord, help us, like Jonathan did to David, to enthrone the right king in our heart, uh, to enthrone Jesus in our heart. And we know that that involves making costly decisions, uh, decisions that, that cost us maybe relational capital with people, might cost us financially, it will cost us in many ways. Um, help us to willingly pay these costs, knowing that Jesus paid the ultimate cost for us. Uh, Lord, help us um, to see Jesus as the rightful king and to enthrone him. Help us by your spirit to be the people that we need to be, we pray. Amen.